Volvoki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Whitney Milhone is the Executive Director of Casting for Recovery, a nonprofit organization that provides healing outdoor retreats for women with breast cancer. Casting for Recovery started in 1996 with a focus on improving quality of life for female cancer patients. The foundation receives nationwide support from medical and psychosocial experts, and it's not hard to see why. The retreats are free to women of all ages in all stages of treatment and recovery, letting them build a support network while they heal from surgery and emotional pain. In this episode of Anchored, I meet with Whitney to discuss why fly fishing is beneficial for women with breast cancer and to learn more about how people can get involved. I'll post a donation link in the podcast description with the hope that we can help Casting for Recovery reach more women with your support. Whitney. Hi. 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 For the record, can you please pronounce your last name for me? Milhone. Milhone. I know, it's so hard. (laughs) It's It's really hard. It actually (laughs) took me a long time to adopt. It's my married name. Yeah. And it took, I felt, you know, pretty connected to my maiden name. Lane. mm -hmm. Which is so easy So easy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's tricky, but, um, you know, it's grown on me. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Let's talk a little bit about your upbringing. I had your sister on the show earlier. She did- All lies. (laughs) <laughs> I'm Tall gonna, tales. You know what? I'm going to call. I, I think that she did a fantastic job of giving me or painting a picture of you guys' upbringing. But I want to talk a little bit about it from your perspective. Awesome. It sounds like you were definitely talented without having to try growing up. Does that sound about right? Oh, gosh. Is that what she said? So you're two and a half years younger. She said that you excelled at basically everything you touched <laughs> without having to like do anything. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, I mean, I think if I, I think that she might've been talking about herself and not me in that <laughs> sense. Um, you know, we have always been encouraged and were encouraged when we were kids to try new things and try different things. And so we did all the things, you know, I, I wanted, I was really into sports and, you know, we were both really into the outdoors and just, so it was, I think more, I appreciate her saying that, but I think, you know, the, it, it's more just a reflection of kids being allowed to try new things and rip around and have like a certain level of independence yeah. that makes that, you know, creates that that type of freedom or success, if you will, for a kid. So yeah. um, I, I do appreciate that. But. It's certainly not true. Like I told you, I'm the person in Target that walks through and like the whole rack just falls over. Like all I have to do is walk in the door and shit starts flying off shelves. Okay. So, <laughs> You're that person. I'm that person. But you obviously, I was, would assume you looked up to your sister growing up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I definitely followed in her footsteps in a lot of ways and also really learned a lot from her. You know, my parents are these really amazing, wonderful people, but in many ways were pretty hands off in, you know, the way we were raised and boundaries. And, you know, I definitely looked to Hill for everything from boys to (laughs) school, to sports, to everything, sex, to everything. So, you know, she definitely was important in the way I grew up. What is your earliest fishing memory? My earliest fishing memory actually is my 13th birthday. Hillary gave me like my birthday present was this vest, this fly fishing vest of like the original, you know, that khaki brown, you know, full thick 
cotton. What, who invented that? I don't know. There's no, like, why was that ever a good idea? It's just so hot and like, <laughs> you know, so all the pockets, pockets. Yes. pockets. But um, I have this like in my mind, you know how you have those uh, memories that become photographs in your mind that yeah. are just almost like freeze frames. I have like this freeze frame of that, of like opening this fly fishing vest and like being so excited and feel, I don't know, it's just this funny time in my, you know, like 13. Yeah. Um, and I just like, for some reason, that moment, like opening that vest was like, ah, it's like f- freeze frame for me. Oh. So that's probably my earliest significant memory. And it's not even about fishing. It's about an ugly vest. Yeah, but it's all, it's all relative. It's all relative. So you were with your sister guiding, what was it, whitewater rafting or? Yeah, started guiding whitewater trips, you know, as a teenager still. And that was awesome, but it also wasn't, um, you know, it's funny. It's like the way we grew up sounds so sexy and romantic and, you know, wild, but it really, it was just normal. So were our friends, you know, all of our good friends were also on the river every day and guiding as high schoolers and running around in the woods and fishing on their own and exploring rivers. And so it was just the, the circumstance of being in that magical place at that time. Just a way of life. Yeah, it really was. So it wasn't, it didn't seem atypical, you know, to be a guide at 18 or whatever. It just was kind of a summer job, you yeah. know, is how it started. So. And then what happened after you finished high school? Um, so I continued guiding, um, through college and a lot of my 20s actually and um, really was focused on kind of these multi-day wilderness uh, trips that we'd, that we'd fly into Schaefer Meadows, which is the headwaters of the Middle Fork. Right. And so they'd be multi-day um, wilderness trips back out. So you cover 60 miles of river and... Oh, so not trout guiding, but... So, yeah, so they be, they were fishing trips. Oh, they mm-hmm. were? Yeah. How did nobody try to capitalize on you guys? You <laughs> two young sisters in a, in a day were really, that, I mean, that would have been so rare. Yeah. How, did anyone ever approach you guys and say, look, let's turn this into a television show mm, or? Gosh, not, I don't think at that time we had, we did some funky, we, we did end up doing a lot of photo shoots and some, you know, random brochure covers and stuff yeah. like that. But, but yeah, no, nothing like that. And we also weren't the first, I mean, she and I were, were the first female fishing guides there, but not the first rafting guides. And there were a lot of women in that industry and whitewater kayaking was really big then and there and a lot of female paddlers in whitewater. And so I don't know. And also at the time, I mean, I, I think also the fishing has changed there. There's so much it's fly fishing has grown so much and become so much bigger and so much more of the spotlight now than it was, you know, when we started 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the whole kind of culture has changed around it. Yeah, no, it definitely yeah. has. Okay. So you continue guiding through the summers and then? Yes. Yeah, so I continued guiding for a long time and um, I studied uh, social work in school oh. and was looking for opportunities to continue to work in the outdoors um, in a different capacity. And started working with nonprofits that were utilizing outdoor programs to promote some sort of physical or emotional healing for different demographics, different groups of people. Even back then. So, mm-hmm, yeah. Wow. Um, and yeah, when I was in my 20s. So, and then I, I took a full time job for a Colorado based nonprofit called First Descents, and they do outdoor adventure therapy for young adults with cancer. Okay. Um, so I did that for years and worked on that program for a long time. And that was really kind of my first introduction to, you know, taking my love for the outdoors and being able to actually, you know, turn it into 
um, something that is directly benefiting you know, quality of life for other people. That must have been um, rewarding. It was for me. You know, it was, it's, I think it's hard to find. I think a lot of people feel, you know, a passion for the outdoors. And then it's like, what do you do with that? Like, how do you turn that into a career path or something that's going to be sustainable? Yeah. And, you know, for, and even Hillary, for example, it's like the guiding alone isn't sus- or fulfilling or sustainable enough, you know, and she's done so much work and done so much to give back and so much on different initiatives that are important to her that that like refuels the tank for the daily grind of guiding or you know what I mean so it's I think anyone that commits to working in the outdoors also then has to find out what what's going to make it sustainable like what's going to keep you going and make you feel challenged and fulfilled and refueled after day after day after day yeah and also I mean you have to give back totally not only is it the right thing to do but to put your head down on the pillow at night and sleep yeah I think you have to give back. Yeah, I I think you're right. And I also think that really makes sense to outdoorsmen because they feel that instant benefit. Like the reason we're all drawn to these experiences are because it's transformational for us. You know, like, and so I think it's this really natural thing. Like most of the anglers I know are like generous of spirit and heart because they reap the benefits of those experiences directly. And so most anglers I know are like, love to give back because they're like, oh, I know what that feels like. It, like uh, just a day on the water or a day on the river is so renewing yeah. that it, it almost forces this like pay it forward mentality because we're all directly benefiting and know what that, that experience can do. Particularly people in the outdoors or outdoorsmen are like really generous of spirit in that way. Talk to me about, so was it first ascent? First descent. First descent. Mm-hmm. Does that still exist? It does. It's first a descent. really awesome program. And so they do whitewater kayaking and surfing and rock climbing and mountaineering. And these are all so using all these different outdoor adventure um, experiences. And they are focused on the young adult cancer population, which is pretty awesome. So have they done studies to prove that getting outside? And Absolutely. And that was like, it. so I was um, really excited to be part of the research team there at First Ascents. And we were really aimed at trying to find some statistical evidence that outdoor experience is actually improving quality of life. And we did. So we went and did a um, pretty lengthy uh, research project that was measuring quality of life for young adults with cancer prior to attending one of these outdoor therapy programs and then after attending. And we were measuring elements like depression, anxiety, insomnia, feelings of isolation, and we actually found a statistical significance in, in the outcome of those um, same individuals six and 12 months after their program. Wow. How do you monitor yeah. that? So um, it's really tricky. So it's this whole, uh, it's a, you have to have a really large sample size, so a lot of people to participate. And then we did um, electronic surveys. And then, so a six-month post and 12-month post. And then we actually ha- worked with social workers and statisticians that captured, you know, really what can we say is statistically because of this experience. Um, Yeah. So that's pretty exciting. And I actually really like that uh, side and that aspect of, of working in kind of the outdoor therapy space is like, you know, moving toward, I think we're moving the direction where the medical community and physicians are going to begin prescribing outdoor experience. Oh, wouldn't that just be amazing? Um, And I really think it's we're getting closer and closer to that for sure. And there are all sort of all sorts of studies already about this kind of theory of ecotherapy or, mm-hmm. you know, connections with nature actually 
improving quality of life. Well, it's um, interesting you should say that because I, I podcasted Fanny Krieger. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And she was telling me, I mean, she's, you know, older. older. And she's she was awesome. talking about her mom mm-hmm. was really sick and they lived, I think they lived in Paris or something. The doctors said, but you know, back in the day, yeah. they said to her mom, you are going to die. You need to get out of the city and go live somewhere in, in the countryside. And so they did that. And her, wow. mom, her mom got better. Yeah. So, I mean, that was back yeah, then. Right. And so there's some actually really cool stuff. Um, I'll just mention two that you might find interesting. I'll send you, I'll email you this one, but Harvard Medical put out an article a couple of years ago on fly fishing in the brain and like why, you know, people always talk about fly fishing as being like so meditative and so healing and all these things. And it was like, okay, what's happening like chemically in the brain when people are fly fishing. I wonder this all the time. I cannot yeah. wait to hear and what you so have to say. And so it basically, the whole thing is so funny because it's nothing earth shattering. It's like so much, sim- it's like the very simple reason is essentially, you're essentially forced into being present and only because there's so much to think about, right? Between your fly and the line and the current and the wind and the birds and, the <laughs> and everything and else that's happening. Footing, everything. Everything that is basically like the, this, like a forced meditation. Like because there's so much happening, you're, you know, really essentially present with that. Like you can't not be present if you're fly fishing. Yes. And it's so natural to who we are as human uh-huh. beings. Maybe we weren't using fly rods back then, but you know, fishing is right. a big part yeah. of us as a species. Right, totally. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting. I'll send it to you. But the whole idea is that there is something behind this, like, meditation in, in fly fishing because it, your your mind is, pre- like, you're entirely present in what you're doing. And so what's not happening is all of that outside noise that is, you know, the rest of the 22 hours of our day. Uh, you know, the multitasking and everything else that's happening at once. And there's not space for that in fly fishing. There's only space for what you're doing and what you're focused on. And so even for people that don't subscribe to meditation or haven't, don't even want to try meditate, it's basically kind of this forced exercise in, in meditation, um, which is really cool. And then another one interesting article that I'll send you that NBC Nightly News did recently was just kind of a growing trend in New York City with physicians prescribing walks into Central Park. And so as part of their, and for everything from anxiety to chronic illnesses, cancer patients, there is a, um, a, a group of physicians in the city that are prescribing for their patients walks in Central Park. For the same reason? Is same it still the medication? Reason, just, and I think it is just like they're like kind of back to this theory of like ecotherapy, even something as little as your feet connecting to the ground, like mm-hmm. the physical natural ground is renewing and healing and um, that, you know, whether it's a garden, planted garden or the backcountry, you know, being connected to the earth. And I get like really into this whole concept of like, we're all made up of the same elements as the earth. Like, so it makes sense that we feel drawn, like a draw to, to nature and to the outdoors and back to the earth, because this is like, you know, we're all made of these same elements. We're already seeing a shift. Like even in um, my work at Casting for Recovery now, if, if I look back, you know, I've been kind of in this outdoor therapy space for 10 years. And if I look back 10 years into how much um, with First Ascents and the research w- that we were doing there, how much support and traction we were getting within the medical community versus, you know, fast forward 10 years, the majority of the women coming to our programs are being referred from their own cancer center. So they're learning about the program and being referred from their oncologist or from their licensed clinical social worker or from their nurse navigator, from the cancer center itself. 
Um, so I, I think we're already seeing that, that, you know, that's kind of slow turn. And I think it's going to, it can certainly only continue to grow. So that's exciting. Do you find that people hear the word meditation and it freaks them out? I do a little bit. It's funny how that, you know. It's ignorance. Yes. I mean, people think that they've it got is. to be in like a yoga studio, right. with like a gong and stuff. Right. Because I get my husband to meditate. Yeah. For a while there, I was losing him. I mean, right. he was so stressed out at work. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you need to meditate. No, I'm not into right. that hippie nonsense. Yeah. You know? like, just hang on. I want you to listen to the sound of the toilet. Right. That's all I want you to listen to for two minutes. Right. Just that. You'll have other thoughts in your head. Mm-hmm. Kick them out, listen to the sound of the toilet. That is meditation. Totally. You know, in a sense. So I think maybe if we can remove the, kind the of stigma yeah. of yeah. what meditation and I, is. I think that's happening. I think it's becoming more and more kind of mainstream. Yeah. Um, you know, even there's so much out right now, too, just about how important that is in anyone's work environment. Just, a, you know, like five minutes, 10 minutes to be present or to take a walk around or to do wall sits or push-ups under your desk or whatever it is. Like, I think that's almost like just common workplace culture now. Especially nowadays where there's no, there is no escape from advertising. I mean, you can't even be in an airplane without them flashing the screen in your face advertising and you you go to shut it off and you can't. Yeah, right. They're force feeding it to you, right? You have no time alone in your head. Mm -hmm. If you don't have headspace, how can you possibly be healthy? The other thing I think is scary for me is when, it feel like when it feels a little bit uncomfortable when there's space, like that's really messed up. You know, like sometimes like you're go, 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 go. And all of a sudden if there's like this little lapse or gap, I'm like, wait, like it almost feels unnatural and uncomfortable. I'm like, okay, breathe into that. Like this is a good thing. But (laughs) I think that happens too, like especially with technology and social media. And it's like this constant scroll and update and scroll and update and scroll and update. And if it's not like it, like I feel like now people are almost, Un, there's so much stimulation happening that when that all that stimulus drops, it's kind of like, oh, what do I do? No. And yeah. so I think that's kind of happening too. Like it'll, it kind of created this kind of counter effect where people are like, oh, right, we used to talk to each other at the dinner table or <laughs> yes. read a book before bed or whatever. But I think it's a bubble. It's all that, I think that's all that has to be a bubble. You think it's going to pop? I think it's going to pop. Before we get into what Casting for Recovery is, when did you, did you, how long were you with First Descent? Um, A long time. I did, I did that for about seven years and it was awesome. It's a really just amazing um, nonprofit. I, I know the founder and knew the founder. He actually is Montana kid as well. And so it was a really amazing opportunity. I think First Descent for a long time was really kind of leading the charge in that space and so to be able to work on that program development and, you know, really kind of um, push the envelope on that stuff was really an awesome opportunity. I then had, meantime, meanwhile, while I was at First Descent, I had heard about Casting for Recovery forever ago. Actually, um, speaking of podcasts, on a, it was a radio, when we all used to listen to the radio, <laughs> yeah. a radio interview with Joan Wolfe. And this is like late 90, probably 99 or something. And I was guiding and she mentioned this nonprofit that's teaching women with breast cancer how to fly fish. And this is kind of when I was definitely like honing in my own angling skills and really working toward becoming a fishing guide and trying to fish more myself and obviously obsessed with Joan Wolf like everyone else was at that time and still is. Um, But, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I have to, that's it. Like, this is what I'm going to do. And so I, and this is like, again, a nod to the times, but I wrote, I typed and printed um, a letter to Casting for Recovery, like pitching myself as an intern 
And I was probably, I think I was 18 or 19 and wrote this whole, you know, I live in Montana and I'm a guide and I'm really getting into fly fishing and I've heard about this program and I'll, you know, lick your envelopes and, (laughs) you know, do whatever you do. And I put it in one of those plastic folders with like the laminated cover, Mm -hmm. printed it off and put it in this thing and put it in this envelope and and sent it off to Vermont, which is where Casting for Recovery was founded and based, and just and didn't hear anything and didn't hear anything and kind of tried to find. And this is of course before. I mean, I don't even know <laughs> no if I emails. had email yeah. at that point. I don't think I did. Um, and it, you know, and Casting for Recovery at that time was super small and just in in the Northeast, and so that didn't pan out. But um, <laughs> what I did was just continue to follow the program and kind of, you know, followed along with what they were doing. And as it grew and grew west, I was part of the, a team of volunteers that brought the program to Montana, to Western Montana. So um, I started as a volunteer years ago. I think that first, uh, that first one was in 2010, maybe nine, maybe even, mm-hmm. maybe eight or nine years ago. And Hillary and I did that together for years volunteered at as fly fishing instructors at the retreats. Ah, were you still guiding, making your money? How were you making your so living? So at that point, when I started volunteering with Casting for Recovery, I was working at First Descents. At, and mm-hmm. that was a paid position. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So we had been, I had been serving as a volunteer with Casting for Recovery for years and knew the program and um, the opportunity to join the national staff there just seemed like this kind of natural next step. And I told them, I was like, you know, I tried to work for free for you guys 10 years ago. <laughs> what was the reasoning for not getting back to you? Um, I, th- I think I was just too early. Like they, it was like this crazy startup grassroots nonprofit. And they were like, we don't even ha- need an intern right now. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. but there are paid positions there now. Oh yes. Yeah. So now I have a, a paid staff of 11 and the program has just really grown tremendously. So, so casting for recovery started 23, two years ago by a group of women in Vermont. Oh, it was a group of women that started mm, it. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it really was kind of this collective effort. I try to really honor all of those founding women because it was really two, it's kind of two women that are credited as, as the co-founders. And um, it's a woman named Dr. Benita Walton and Gwen Bogart or Gwen Perkins. Yeah. Okay. And so they're kind of credited as the co-founders, but what I've learned is that it was really a collective effort that these women, these like female anglers had come together and were like kicking around this idea and worked really, there were other people that worked really hard to get it off the ground. And it was such a labor of love for, you know, this kind of small, small group of women. And um, I try to always honor them all as these, the founding women of the organization. Yeah. And yeah, that's it's pretty cool. It's just so forward thinking for back then. It really is. What, what, what prompted the idea? Yeah. So, it, you know, Obviously, as we said, and as we all experience, there's kind of this therapeutic benefits of just being on the water and casting a fly rod and all of these things. But what the founding women really latched onto was also couple that with the physical aspect of cast the physical motion of casting a fly rod being a good, gentle physical therapy for women that have been through either radiation or surgery as part of their breast cancer treatment. So they're talking about, you know, after your surgery or radiation for breast cancer treatment, you go home with this list of physical therapy exercises. And a lot of them are in this range of motion, same range of motion that's used in fly casting. Wow. Um, so their idea, the, that initial concept was coupled, you know, on that kind of dual theory of 
the physical exercise being a gentle way for women to get back into exercising after surgery. Did any of the founding women have breast cancer? No, but the um, one of the founders, Benita, um, was a... Mm-hmm, okay. Yeah, and so she was actually a reconstructive surgeon. So she had a lot of patients. She had a lot of patients that she had done their reconstruction and after, you know, after coming through the surgery and prescribing physical therapy, she was like, well, this would, you know, fly fishing would fit right in. And she was an oh, angler also. She was. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So now what's your role there today? So I'm the executive director um, now of Casting for Recovery, which is um, obviously an, an honor and really also it, it's a very, it still is a a grassroots nonprofit. So it, you know, it's not a dictatorship by any means. I'm just one cog in the wheel. But um, so the way it's organized, we have Casting for Recovery offers these free fly fishing retreats for women with breast cancer. And the women who come are any age in any stage of their treatment or recovery. So some of the women come are still in the throes of treatment. Some are years into remission and still dealing with some of the emotional challenges that come with life after breast cancer and the program, the retreats are all over the country. So we are now in 46 states and offer 62 retreats a year. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that is amazing. it's a lot. So it's about almost 900 women a year that come through and there have been um, nearly 9,000 women to date that have, that have learned to fly fish at Casting for Recovery. That is incredible. It's cool. Does it have to be breast cancer? Do you guys have women who just, who have other forms yeah, of cancer? It, so Casting for Recovery is, is breast cancer specific and that's been a challenge, you know, in thinking about kind of the, the strategy and, and the growth of the organization. It's been a tricky one to tackle. Again, going back to the, you know, specifically why, fly fishing and breast cancer makes sense. And, and what the founding women had in mind is specific to breast cancer based on that kind of physical therapy piece. The other challenges that we face, we're still only serving a third of the women with breast cancer who apply. So we're already having to turn away 72% of the women with breast cancer that apply. So we haven't even been able to fully serve this very small demographic that we set out to serve, which makes it challenging to then serve other demographics. Is it funding or time or people? Yeah, all of the above. Okay. Yeah, the magic combination of all of those things. And the other thing that we've found is that, um, and that I've learned also with working with other groups of cancer survivors, is there is there certainly is a bond between people that have faced any sort of cancer diagnosis. Yeah. But we've seen that even that bond go even deeper for gynecological cancers and breast cancer, like for women who have experienced um, breast cancer or gynecological cancers, it just tends, you know, there are so many disease specific um, challenges that it makes a really powerful community. Like it may, like keeping it breast cancer specific um, makes for these really kind of powerful and transformational relationships to to grow and that support to be um, really personal. I think everyone can benefit from fly fishing. I have this like, you know, really big broad vision of like, think of all the the groups of women we could help with this, not just cancer and chronic illness, but, you know, mental illness and domestic violence victims. And, you know, there's a whole laundry list of groups of women that could receive healing from a program like this. But for now, you know, based on 
those things, the time, the people, the money, mm-hmm. um, it's breast cancer specific. How does the program work? So some, somebody has breast cancer and they reach out to you. Uh-huh. What happens from there? Yeah. So the, um, most of the women here, like I said, either from their cancer center about the program or word of mouth or online or Googling for support groups or whatever it is, there's a really simple application that's online. And so they submit the, an application. And from there, it's just a random lottery. So, Oh, it is. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we've done that because of our inability to serve everyone. It has seemed to be the fairest way. And so people just basically throw their name in the hat. The other thing that's interesting is that, you know, some of the, un, it, it's really hard to try to justify or qualify who needs to come. Or who yeah. most, you, you know, uh, we don't, don't want to add the weight of trying to prioritize or give preference or anything like that because it really is, every woman's story is so different. And some of the women that on paper look perfectly fine end up having like the most incredible experience, transformational experiences and have been, you know, towing a, a tough line for a long time. And so it, it's really not, you know, we don't like to... Pick and choose. Pick and choose, yeah. yeah so we yeah, do kind of this um, get it. random lottery, and it is a weighted lottery based on if you haven't, if you've applied in the past. So it's hard because I said we're getting so many more applications that we can serve, but we do try to give preference to women that have applied multiple times and not uh, been selected. How many times are they allowed to apply a year? So they just you can just apply once a year, and you can only apply to the program in your region. Our goal is that you'll meet other women locally that you can continue to fish with or grab a coffee with or, you know, we're really trying to help women build a support network. Do you guys offer some sort of like a list of references mm-hmm. or a list of options for women who don't get drawn? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the rest of that. So after the drawing is done, we really are, are trying hard to create, you know, kind of this virtual community and not just CFR, but also resources and other programs and, and connected to other women and even connected to the CFR women and alumni oh, good, in their community. That, so yeah. yeah, we do the best we can. And, and um, the system does work. It's not most women, even if they're not selected or unlucky in that first draw, will get in the second time they apply. Okay. So say somebody gets chosen, then what happens? Yeah. So we start um, about 10 weeks prior to the retreat, just communicating with the women. We do need to get a medical release form from their physician. But I will say that we can accommodate everyone. We've had, we have women that come and nap the whole time, but like to sit on the porch swing. Or <laughs> we yeah. have women that come and um, fish from a camp chair in the river. Um, so we, really, we can really accommodate, meet every woman where she is and accommodate nearly every situation and circumstance. Um, and really all we need is their desire to be there and their physician's blessing to be there. And, um, so we've had, you know, we've really are able to accommodate all walks for sure in, in all stages and health statuses in terms of where they are with, with breast cancer. And so those first, we get the physician's release and then just a series of communications for the women prior to the retreat in terms of what to expect and what to pack. Um, we try to connect them to carpool. So they'll usually meet other women and, and carpool or ride share up together, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Do you it's, choose retreats that are in their region or do you send them, you know, across the country? Yeah. We really ask that all of the women go locally, as locally as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it, it's more cost effective for us. And also, again, hopefully they'll continue to fish or at least continue to 
communicate and stay in touch with the women all that came regionally there. So that model works really well. Also, mm-hmm. all of the volunteers that come, come lo- from locally. And so they're all willing to continue to fish with the women after the retreat or, yeah, you know, course, they'll see them in the right. grocery store. Or it really, you know, it's really what has allowed Casting for Recovery to be this like really massive community across the country because people are, are going and locally and then growing these relationships locally. So that, that really where I know it's like a lot of people come, they're like, I want to go to Montana or something, but, but, um, we ask that they go to the retreat in their area. It mm-hmm. does make the most sense. Yeah. I mean, for what the the premise of it all is, right. What about, uh, cost? Does it cost them anything? Cost them nothing. Um, so the entire retreat is free of cost, all of their food, their lodging, the gear and equipment, um, everything, most of the women get themselves to the venue, so they'll drive themselves to the retreat, but we also do travel scholarships and um, can arrange for support with travel if that creates a burden. I, you know, That's something that's been really important to us. Cancer is expensive as it is, it right? Is, yeah. like it's, it's expensive enough, so we really don't want that to be a burden at all. And the other thing that's interesting, um, so it's hard to take a break. It's hard to take a weekend and do something for yourself especially for women. So, so many women that come through breast cancer, they're, you know, they're back to work and they're holding their families together and they're trying to get their heads wrapped around like what their new normal is going to be. And it's, it's actually hard to take a break for yourself and commit to doing something, you know, for your own well-being. especially I think coming out of cancer treatment, it's like all they want to do is, get their life back. And, you know, I guess when you're sick, yeah, you, you, there'd be so much pressure to keep your family, I mean, fed and, right. and, and you don't want your family worried about you. Right. So, so you're trying that's to put- the clutch that that's, you just hit the nail on the head. Is it, it's not even like the, it's not even our daily grind. It's more women, like these women are all caregivers and they're all like the, the shoulders of the family, like they're all, you know, that kind of keeping everyone together. So it's beyond the, the weight of their own needs and situation and schedule. It's like then making sure that everyone else isn't feeling bad because you're feeling bad. What we know now about a cancer diagnosis is that, I mean, what we're seeing on the medical side is that women, more women are surviving, which is great. We have better treatment options, which is great. We have less invasive surgeries, which is great. Um, you know, it, all of that is really good news. But on the emotional side, like the impact of all of that, that fear, that lasts a lifetime. I right. mean, and then there's the fear of recurrence and having gone through it once and when's it going to come back and, you know, that and, and then trying to live beyond that fear is crippling. Wow. Wow. This is so insightful. Now, how do you guys get your money? So a lot of different ways, you know, it's funny in a, you know, casting for recovery is now this pretty large nonprofit organization, but very grassroots in a lot of ways, all of our local volunteers across the country are working really hard to raise funds for their local retreat. So that's everything from, um, happy hours to, you know, bake sales and bowling tournaments, um, all sorts of 5k runs, all sorts of events happening at the kind of local grassroots level. We still get the majority of our fundraising from individual donations. I was going to ask so you that. So that's $20, $40 at a time um, across the country, which is awesome. And I think it really speaks to, you know, the fact that people are connecting with our our mission and our story and the program and also the women. Like we have now this like amazing, you know, team of ambassadors out there ta- sharing their own experiences and talking about the program. And that's pretty powerful. Um, we also get some grant money from foundations, 
and corporations. And then we have a handful of really supportive national sponsors who are outdoor brands, fly fishing brands, pharmaceutical companies, car dealership. So just kind of a handful of national sponsors that commit, you know, a a level of, of support every year. But if everybody listening to this, for example, were to donate $20, yeah, it, could, you know, it adds up, right? It, if everyone listening were to donate $5, it adds up. Like really what we've seen is like the power of, of really believing in something and the power of how much we can do together if we all do a little. And Casting for Recovery is, you know, definitely the perfect example of that. You know, it's it really is a little bit from a lot of people that, that makes it strong and also sustainable. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and that's really meaningful and, you know, I, I feel like that is something that's really important to me in terms of the governance of this organization is not losing sight of the importance of all those small gifts because it really is the collective power of the 5 and 10 and $20 donations that keep us going. So it's really important. And, and then it you know it's really important for me for all of those 5 and $10 donors to feel like they've made a direct impact in these women's lives and at our programs because they have. So it's really important, but it's easy to overlook too. So we try to keep that mainstream in terms of really making sure people feel appreciated and connected and that their money's uh, making a powerful impact. I'll put a link up so it's easy enough to do. Thank you. It doesn't take very long to donate. Five seconds. Yeah. Super easy. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. What's the male equivalent of Casting for Recovery? So there is a program that actually was um, started based on Casting for Recovery's model um, by a a man who used to volunteer with Casting, used to be one of our volunteer guides at Casting for Recovery who started a very similar program for men. It's called Real Recovery. And a very similar, similar program model. They're also not not in quite as many locations, but but spread out um, across the country and and offer a very similar program for um, men with cancer and and not disease specific. So any men that have been diagnosed with cancer. Um, what's the youngest applicant you've ever had? We had a woman who was twenty three. Oh wow, that's really young. Yep, super young. Yeah, and actually, I'm really excited. Um, we have an awesome program. This new retreat this year that's being sponsored by Yeti and Zodiac. Um, boats and it's a retreat specifically for young women with breast cancer. And um, so it's diagnosed under 40. And we're doing this in collaboration with another nonprofit called Boarding for Breast Cancer. Oh, I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's surfing and stand up paddle boarding oh, cool. for women with breast cancer. So, yeah, really well aligned. And so we're partnering with them on this retreat. And it's really exciting. Um, we have been seeing this trend of more younger women at our retreats. And um, have really, you know, young, young women are facing a different set of challenges, fertility, sexuality in relationships, less financially independent, like all, you know, like in the, the middle or the beginning of their new career. It's like all of these things, like this really already an unstable time in your 20s, 30s. And so, you know, a breast cancer diagnosis on top of that all of a sudden changes everything. It's like, what's this? Am I going to be able to have kids? Do I even want kids? Why do I have to think about whether or not I want kids in what are my fertility preservation options? You know, it really is a challenging and specific um, set of issues that younger women with breast cancer are facing. Also now there's just the weight of the, you know, being tested for the genetic mutation. So if you test positive for BRCA gene, then the gene mutation, then you know you have a much greater risk of being diagnosed with breast cancer. So we're seeing a lot of women who are having prophylactic double mastectomies just from the positive BRCA um, gene. So it's really complex. Like the cancer in younger women is complex in so many ways. It's so scary. Uh It really is. 
Mm-hmm. If you guys had more money, what would you do? Would you add more staff? Would you do more retreats? Would you take more applicants? Yeah, absolutely. I think that obviously we need to find a way to serve more women. And I, it's tricky because the this is a part of what's so magical about this program model is this kind of weekend retreat concept. Like you, le- like you're they get to leave all of the stress and uh, you know kind of daily challenges of their life and their life with cancer behind and try something new and exhilarating and challenging and they feel empowered and it's authentic like it's re- like it's important for me to be for this to be like an authentic introduction to fly fishing so it's kind of the real deal yeah and it's super amazing and and then in between those times you know like on the way to the river there are all these conversations happening and at dinner they're connecting with each other and sharing their stories and um, so all of these amazing things happen because of this really intimate environment and it's hard to you could it's an expensive way to serve people you know you have to have lodging for them and gear and equipment and a weekend away and all the food and so I want to make sure that the growth of the actual retreats is slow enough to be sustainable. Okay. Yep. Um, and in the meantime, I want to think about how we continue to, to be kind of like this beacon of hope and healing for women, right? So we can only grow our program so quickly. What else can we do? Like how else can we be this, re- like I, my goal is for Casting for Recovery to become like this gateway for women to turn to the outdoors for healing. You know, and whether or not that someday grows beyond breast cancer or beyond cancer or anything, like that's my goal. Like that's kind of like my my big picture vision is that casting for recovery becomes like this big safe gateway for women to turn to the outdoors for healing from whatever they're facing. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.